Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect. Last week, the Russian opposition activist and campaigner Alexei Navalny died, one way or the other killed by the Russian state, which had attempted to assassinate him before and which, after he voluntarily returned into Putin's hands, was holding him in a Russian Arctic prison camp. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, the soldiers fighting against Russian forces that invaded from the east are in real trouble, running low on shells and troops. To discuss Navalny's legacy and the challenges that lie ahead for Russia and Ukraine, I'm joined by Timothy Gartenash, an award-winning historian, author and professor of European studies at the University of Oxford. His most recent book is Homelands, A Personal History of Europe. Timothy, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. Now, we're speaking shortly after the news um, was broken at the end of last week of Navalny's death. And Timothy, you were at Munich Security Conference uh, when that news came through. Can you tell us a little bit about the reaction there um, from Western leaders and indeed from Navalny's wife, who also spoke? So I'll never forget the moment when I was actually just talking to the editor of the FT at the bar in the hotel in the, the Munich Security Conference. And she said, do you realize what's just happened and showed me the news? And while we, we knew that his life was bound to be in danger because he was in Putin's prison camps is still a huge shock. And then, you know, later that day, they say we're in the main hall and they say there's an, uh, you know, a special guest. And even before the news had actually been confirmed that Alexei Navalny had been killed, because we have to say he was killed one way or another by the Putin regime, his wife, Yulia Navalnaya, suddenly appears on stage, uh, incredibly moving moment, looking very, very strained. Everyone jumps to their feet, standing ovation. And she says, you know, I wonder what I should do right now. Should I go to my children or should I come and talk to you? And then I thought, what would Alexei have done? And he would have wanted me to come and talk to you. And then she said, Putin has to be um, brought to account. Putin has to be brought to justice. So an, an unforgettable moment. And what was the reaction from, you know, more traditional political leaders, I guess, at Munich? Because, th- I mean, this event is a real gathering of um, of European leaders, security experts. There are many high-profile people there. Well, there are 
bags of presidents and prime ministers. I mean, it's a most extraordinary assemblage of people. And of course, they all said how horrified they were. Um, what I would say is that it was already, uh, you know, a much stronger message than last year's Munich Security Conference. So much, much more of a sense that we're really at war. It's not just Ukraine that's at war and that Ukraine is now losing on the battlefield. And so we have to do more. So there was already a much kind of stronger mobilization. And then this. And that, as it were, stiffened the sinews, strengthened the resolve, I think, of, 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 of many of the heads of, heads of government there, or if you like, put them on, put, put them on the, on the spot. So it made it that bit more dramatic. But you know, there were two Yulias I saw at, um, at the Munich Security Conference. There was Yulia Navalnaya, the Russian Yulia. But there was also, I'll never forget, a, a Ukrainian Yulia, a, a military medic from Mariupol who'd been captured by the Russians, tortured by the Russians. She told us she'd had six operations as a result of the of the torture and her wounds. Um, she said, "We are we are the dogs of war," and and made this kind of passionate appeal to us to help to give them the weapons and the ammunition to to, to finish the war and bring back peace. So that for me, Munich was really about those two Yulias, so the, the Ukrainian Yulia and the Russian Yulia. And that message from the Ukrainian Yulia, this this plea for for weaponry, for support, um, you know, has is is one that's been emphasised by Zelensky, by by Ukrainian leaders. Because I mean, over the, over the weekend, we saw um, exactly just how much pressure the Ukrainian armed forces are under with the retreat from. From Avdivka, which you know, brings a significant victory, it seems, for the Russian forces. So, I mean, I mean, just how desperate is this this plea? Just how dire are the straits that the Ukrainian armed forces are in? Ukrainian soldiers who are already exhausted, uh, and as I said in the in the piece in in Prospect in the magazine, average age about forty or above forty. And now they're having to ration ammunition. So imagine you're at the front line, and in some places, the Russians are firing 10 times more uh, ammunition shells than the Ukrainians. And so the Ukrainians are getting pummeled. There's no way they can hold out. And there's one reason for this, and only one, because Russia's turned to a war economy and, by the way, got more shells from North Korea than Ukraine has got from the entire EU. There's a figure for you. And where just the West is just not sending them enough ammunition fast enough. And so there was a real sense of urgency. But, you know, I mean, the, the, the Danish Prime Minister, Meta Fredriksson, said something else amazing, which is we're sending our entire artillery to Ukraine. Think about that. Denmark, its entire artillery. Uh, the Czech president, who Peter Pavel, who's a former NATO general, uh, we've identified 800,000 rounds of ammunition that could be bought on the world markets. Why don't we buy them and send them tomorrow? So there was that kind of urgency from, from, from those people and from Kaya Kallas of Estonia. But Emmanuel Macron wasn't even there. And Olaf Scholz gave a very, very dull and uninspiring speech just reciting all the figures for the billions of euros that Germany was spending, but without the passion and without the urgency. So I came away with, with very mixed feelings. 
what's your understanding of of what's happened to that you know traditional sort of franco german leadership of europe why are they so absent when the baltic states in particular though not only are speaking up so strongly so obviously you know if you're estonia you have a sense of you know direct threat existential risk and if you're czech you remember being invaded and occupied first by the Nazis in the end of the 1930s and then by the Soviet Union in 1968. So you have a kind of different historical experience. But there's also a big divide between those who, like me, as I argued in the essay, understand that when you're supporting one side in a war, it's generally a good idea to want them to win, right? And not just not to lose. Um, and France and Germany in particular, Emmanuel Macron and, and Olaf Scholz, whose formula is still not to lose and who are somehow just not giving full-hearted support to Ukraine, who are worried about escalation, about Putin going crazy, the Germans are not giving the Taurus missile, which is a long-distance missile with which the Ukrainians could threaten the Russian supply lines to Crimea, and still somehow looking for, 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 for some kind of a compromise. So there's a real fault line there, not just in the sense of urgency uh, in, in, in Europe and in the West. And of course, the other thing is, the, the other huge topic was Donald Trump is Donald Trump just going to pull the rug out from the Ukrainians? And and how the hell are we going to get the US Congress to pass this supplementary vote to get incredibly urgently needed American arms and ammunition to, to the Ukrainians? That question of the potential lack of American support in future, if Donald Trump was to be successful in his campaign to be US president again, is, is obviously, you know, suddenly seems to be a huge point of discussion even though others may argue that it, it, it's no great surprise that we're in the position that we're in now with him, a likely um, Republican candidate. In his speech at Munich, Zelensky was really appealing to Congress to pass that. But it's was there any American engagement um, on that issue at Munich? Is there any sense that Ukraine might get the outcome that it so desperately needs? There's a huge congressional delegation and as a very good friend of mine, uh, who's, who's a Democrat in that delegation, said they spent half the time talking to each other and trying to work out how they could break the the Trumpian procedural blockage in the House of Representatives. Um, because the way it's now working, there are kind of various procedural blockages which are very difficult to, 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 to break. Um, 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 in 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 old the, the Polish noble democracy in the 16th and 17th century, there was something called a liberum veto, which was one person could veto um, um, any decision, which is one reason the Polish Republic didn't last that long. And it's almost that position now in the in the U.S. House. So there was a huge amount of discussion about that, and absolutely no certainty because the Trumpian stranglehold on the Republicans is just so strong. So that even lots of, you know, Republican congressmen and women who who personally would love to vote for it are just terrified of of, of then, you know, losing their base and uh, losing their supporters back home. 
So from a European perspective, if there's little or no guarantee of continued American support for for Ukraine and you know, in, indeed in NATO, what can and should European leaders be doing right now to to prepare for you know that potential eventuality at the end of this year even? Well, first of all, I think a lot of Europeans are in denial. They're trying to persuade themselves it's not actually going to happen and won't be so bad if it does. Uh, secondly, you know, everybody at Munich was saying Europe must do more for its defence. And, you know, there are now 18 members of uh, NATO which are spending 2% of their GDP, the NATO target, and we must ratchet up our defence industry. But the truth is, and by, by the way, there's even a suddenly a huge debate about a European nuclear deterrent, particularly in Germany. Um, here I am. I'm speaking to you from Dusseldorf, by the way. And, and um, here, here we are in a country that has just got out of civil nuclear power altogether. Um, but suddenly it's talking about having nuclear weapons. So people are all over the place. There's also a kind of huge, slightly diffuse debate about what Europe should do. But the reality is everybody knows um, we've been so dependent in NATO on the US for so long that there are kind of huge capacities, I don't know, heavy lift and this and that, and the nuclear deterrent, where Europe just can't substitute for the US uh, anytime soon. It would take years to do that. And so if if he does, if the die actually does win in on November the 5th, Donald Trump, um, there's going to be a huge European crisis. And the question is, is this actually going to unite Europe, get Europe to get its act together, which is obviously what we all hope for, or will it actually leave Europe all over the place with Viktor Orban going one way, the Estonians going another, and the French a third? And I'm honestly, if I'm quite honest, I'm, I'm rather afraid it'll it'll go that way. In your talks at Munich, you mentioned there's sort of a different perspective then from France and Germany as from the Baltics and other states. So, I mean, that suggests that um, Europe's not currently all on the same page. November the 5th would be too, li- too late to come onto the same page, wouldn't it? Too little, too late seems quite a likely scenario. I mean, I mean, I mean not to depress you too much, um, you know, there's, there's a kind of clear intellectual acknowledgement of what, of what, what needs to be done. And, 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 you know, there are, you know, the EU itself is actually procuring ammunition and then there are all these initiatives to strengthen European defense and so on. So it's not that nothing is being done. It's just that, um, it's nothing like enough. Um, to, 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 as it were, substitute for, for, for the security big brother is perhaps the wrong phrase, but the, the protector we've been depending on. I mean, think about it. It's 80 years. It's 80 years since D-Day this year. Um, and, and all the disunity between different Europeans. I mean, ECFR, the European Council on Formulations, is just releasing or will just have released some polling on attitudes to the war. And, um, you know, Europeans are pretty much all over the place, but quite large groups of people in in many European countries um, think the war will end with some sort of a deal with Ukraine losing a good chunk of its territory. And, and quite a lot of them actually want that. So at that point, there'd also be a big argument about 
what is actually our aim in Ukraine? Do we want them to win or do we want to get to some sort of a negotiated compromise? After the break, we'll talk more about how prepared or unprepared Europe is for conflict. But first, I'd like to tell you about an offer where you can enjoy one month's free trial to Prospect's digital content and get full access to rigorously fact-checked, truly independent analysis and perspectives. There's no commitment and you can cancel at any time. To take advantage of this great deal, please search for Prospect One Month Free Trial Offer. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fair. <laughs> In your piece for our magazine, you set out some of the problems with that idea of a, of a negotiated peace, and um, you know, one being simply that, of course, Ukrainians absolutely uh, do not want that, which means Zelensky absolutely could not kind of go for that in a negotiation, even if he himself wanted that, which he's he's said explicitly, you know, they would not they would not do. So you've set out some of some of the problems with that idea of a of a negotiated settlement but do you do you think that is now the most likely outcome even if not the most desirable for ukraine i don't think a negotiated settlement is likely anytime soon um but if we don't do more to support the ukrainians and then add in donald trump um it's going to be very difficult for the Ukrainians to win back a lot of the land bridge between Donbass and the Crimea, the Zaporizhia and Kherson Oblast, which is a crucial point. I mean, this huge chunk of territory where millions of Ukrainians lived. Um, by the way, militarily, I mean, it's, it's difficult because the Russians are dug in, but the, the weakness of the Russian position is their supply lines through Crimea and I was talking to very senior military people in Munich who said, you know, if we had enough long-range missiles, you can really 
cut their Russian supply lines, and then they're, they're, then they're in trouble, and then it becomes more feasible for the Ukrainians to win back some territory. So um, I, I, if I'm saying something about what is probable, that has to be based on a, um, a guess about how much the West is going to do, because it, it's going to depend on us, right? Um, but what I think is totally unrealistic, if I can just say quickly, first of all, neither side is ready to negotiate. So we can talk till the cows come home about negotiation. It's not us negotiating with the Russians. It's a question of the Ukrainians and the Russians sitting down. Putin thinks he's winning. He's waiting for Trump. So he's not going to negotiate. And as you rightly said, Ellen, you know, what I point out in the, in the piece, having been to Ukraine, you know, twice last year is that, um, actually three times last year is that any Ukrainian politic, politician, even Zelensky, who even hinted that he was going to give up territory, would be toast. Um, so we're not going to have an, a negotiated settlement. No one on the ground is ready for that. And then the other illusion is that somehow it could be like the beginning of the Cold War and you could have this kind of frozen conflict, but then, you know, some way down the road, um, just as East Germany and Eastern Europe finally came back to the West. Um, so, you know, Eastern Ukraine could come back to the West and that's clearly not going to happen either. If we can turn to some of the security arrangements that, you know, are being built, as you say, the Baltic states have been very vocal, I mean, for an extremely long time, particularly since the full-scale invasion two years ago, um, about the threat from Russia. But there are signs of smaller groupings within Europe um, investing more in their defence. Estonia, I think, are building trenches along their border. We've had senior military figures in, um, I think, Norway and Sweden, talking about the likely possibility of a wider war within the next five, ten years. Do those developments give you some hope that um, Europe is taking on board that sense of urgency that you've called for? Parts of Europe. There's this really rather interesting initiative called the Joint Expeditionary Force, JEF, J-E-F, which is Britain, Baltic States, and Scandinavians. And of course, you know, the Finns and Swedes who are coming into NATO, particularly the Finns, have very strong armed forces, which is a kind of serious military cooperation to be ready to defend against against Russia. And the Finns too are building up along their frontier. So yeah, I think there is um, resolve there. But, you know, uh, the other thing which everybody was agreeing on in Munich, is that if Putin wins in Ukraine, he's not going to stop there. For him, this is part of a much longer struggle to restore the Russian Empire. And I don't think the next move is to have a go at Estonia, which you know has the Article 5 NATO guarantee, but Moldova, which is, is sandwiched between Ukraine and Romania, very small country, very small armed forces, uh, not in NATO, but a candidate for the EU, you know, maybe have a go there. What's for sure is it's not over so long as Vladimir Putin is still sitting in the Kremlin and thinks he can win one way or another. I was reading before we came on in your book, Homelands, about the first time you encountered Vladimir Putin, which was in 1994. Um, and what he said at that time, you say, made you sit bolt upright. The signs have been there for a long time about Putin's uh, perception of of NATO, of Europe, of Western 
enlargement. I mean, can you tell us a bit about that first encounter with Vladimir Putin? Conference in St. Petersburg, 1994, the West and Russia, everyone full of goodwill and helping Russia to modernize and democratize and so on. Suddenly, this rather unpleasant looking little man pipes up. No one has any idea who this guy is, some kind of sidekick of the mayor. Um, And he says, we have to remember that there are territories that were historically always belonged to Russia. Um, And now they're outside the Russian Federation and we have a rather serious interest in them. And he specifically mentions Crimea. And he says there are 25 million Russians living outside the frontiers of the Russian Federation and we have to look after them. Yeah, you guessed, his name was Vladimir Putin. And, uh, you know, everyone sat up and it was like a cold shower. And then, and actually several of us then argued back. And, um, but the point is, you know, just three years after the end of the Soviet Union, five years before even the first eastward enlargement of NATO, and already he's thinking about Crimea and he's thinking about trying to get bits of the old Russian empire back. And so, you know, we should have no illusion. His The fundamental motivation is that he thinks Russia should be an empire, that Russia should be a great power, and he thinks Ukraine belongs to Russia. And over the years, he's just become more persuaded of that through reading and writing a lot of bad history, through mounting resentment of the West, um, you know, through seeing the West particularly the United States doing whatever it likes in places like uh, Iraq. And he thinks anything you can do, I can do better. So, you know, have no doubt this is a guy who has been preparing for years to try and get as much as possible of the Russian empire and the Russian sphere of influence back. And he thinks he's at war not with Ukraine. He thinks he's at war with the West. And indeed, he's been fairly explicit about a lot of that for some time. At, at the same Munich conference in 2007, he almost said as much, didn't he? This was the moment at which he actually, for the first time, declared war on the West, because in his first years as president, um, he was trying to get the country out of hawk. Um, he was trying to you know, have good relations with the West. He was much less certain of himself. He needed economic relations. It was slightly following to the Peter the Great model, which is, you know, you're authoritarian at home, but but modernizing with the help of the West. Um, 2007, not accidentally, after Iraq and after various Western interventions, basically he declares war on this unipolar world dominated by the United States. And funnily enough, if you look on my Twitter feed, you can see I just tweeted today a picture of him and Angela Merkel having a tete-a-tete lunch at the Munich Security Conference in 2007, and both laughing away, very chummy indeed. You know, there's a, there's a whole extraordinary history of Western appeasement there, and uh, many Western politicians have a lot to answer for, but particularly Angela Merkel. Bearing in mind kind of that's, that significance of the speech in Munich, did you see any significance in the timing of... Navalny's death at the hands of the Russian state. Putin seems to think, as you say, that he's winning in Ukraine. The killing of such a high-profile figure as Navalny um, seems almost, you know, 
it's quite a bold move to say almost like try me look how strong I am I can get away with this it hasn't been done for for decades um did you see any significance in the timing of of Navalny's murder first of all there's no question the Putin regime was responsible for his death we know they tried to poison him then in this act of unbelievable courage he went back they locked him up in prison they sent him to in brutal conditions to a you know to an arctic camp but we also have a now authenticated video of Alexei Navalny the day before he died in a in a videoed court hearing um looking pretty much okay and joking with the judge uh, and and the jailer so it was very sudden there've been some reports of uh Russian security service agents visiting the prison a couple of days before so it doesn't at all look like death from natural causes as for the timing honestly we don't know there are multiple explanations possible it's possible he was just putting up two fingers to the west and saying you know f you i can do whatever i like at home it's possible it was a message directed mainly at people inside russia but what's for sure is it shows that he is now even more ruthless than ever on that point about the response inside russia alexei navalny represented a kind of civic resistance that is not widespread across russia i think we can say that there are of course uh dissidents campaigners there have been journalists who have stood up to putin's regime and and suffered for it but there is also significant support for putin in response to navalny's death we have seen some russians in not insignificant numbers coming out to lay memorials for navalny and the russian state then kind of cracking down on that do you, do you think that this moment will um be felt very strongly within russia will it lead to any kind of greater resistance to putin or is his grip too tight funnily enough i just had lunch here in dusseldorf with my russian publisher um but she's in dusseldorf and she said her social media filled with russian friends and acquaintances um in deep mourning but also kind of despairing of the whole situation so the other russia absolutely exists but more and more it's either outside the country uh, or they're in prison or they they're dead because a lot of people have, have have been killed one way or another by by the putin regime so i think the honest answer as with uh many you know regimes of terror and and terror is not too strong a word to use now is that we don't know because people are too frightened to say and it it took a lot of courage just to go out and lay flowers on an improvised memorial and many of those people were um were arrested it's obviously also true that there's a good deal of support there's a lot of kind of patriotic fervor something happens if your country is at war um that 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 changes the calculus but that doesn't mean that if something changes politically and in particular if russia faces a big defeat in ukraine that that can't change quite suddenly you know it's no accident that the two 
revolutions in the 20th century in Russia happened after military defeats or big military setbacks. So 1905, after the Russo-Japanese War, and 1917, um, when Russia was doing very badly in the First World War. So I would argue quite strongly that if we want to support the democratic opposition in Russia, the best thing we can do is to support Ukraine. And honestly, I've talked to several Russian friends who will say privately, defeat is the best thing that could happen to Russia now. Now, obviously, it can't be total defeat as as, as it was for Germany in 1945. But defeat in Ukraine is absolutely possible. Um, and then I think you might suddenly find that there were many, many more people in Russia who aren't saying anything now because they're frightened or keeping their heads down, but then would like to see Russia reconnect with the West and Europe. That would actually be my hunch. Well, Timothy Gartanash, thank you very much for joining the podcast and talking us through um, what are two very dark and very connected stories, that of the the death of Alexei Navalny and the difficult situation of Ukrainian armed forces. But thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, then head to our website at prospectmagazine.co.uk, where you can read Timothy's report from Ukraine in full. That's all for now, though. So until next time, goodbye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.